Welcome back to the Pacific Century, a Hoover Institution podcast on China, America, and the fate of the 21st century. I'm your host, Misha Oslin, and today I'm very happy to be joined by two longtime Asia experts and folks deeply involved in the policy world here in D.C., which is Carolyn Bartholomew and Alex Wong. Now, if you're wondering why it's both Carolyn and Alex, those of you who are regular devotees of the work of the U.S.-China Commission, or more formally, the U.S.-China Commission, uh, U.S.-China Economic and Security Review Commission, you of course will know that Carolyn is the chairperson of that and Alex is the vice chair. And so having the dynamic duo on to talk about the annual report from the commission, we'll just call it the commission, uh, which most people in Washington eagerly await to see what uh, the commission has covered and what its recommendations are, we thought would be a great way to begin winding up 2023. So uh, let me do some brief introductions. Um, Carolyn Bartholomew, as I mentioned, is the chair of the commission. She's been on the commission since 2003. She's been the uh, chairman for five report cycles and vice chair for six report cycles. Um, she is a longtime uh, Washingtonian working on the Hill. She was chief of staff for then House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, served for a very long time with Speaker Pelosi, and was also a professional staff member on the House Permanent Select Committee on Intelligence. She is a, an expert in U.S.-China relations, including issues related to trade, human rights, proliferation of weapons of mass destruction, and all other important issues. Alex Wong, as I mentioned, is the vice chair of the commission, uh, recently joining the commission after having served as the deputy special representative from North Korea and the deputy assistant secretary for North Korea at the State Department. He also served during the Trump administration as the deputy assistant secretary for regional and security affairs in the State Department's East Asia Bureau. Previously, he was a foreign policy advisor and general counsel to Senator Tom Cotton, and also the foreign and legal policy director for the Romney-Ryan 2012 presidential campaign. And those are just brief bios of both of these extremely experienced and distinguished members of the foreign policy world here in D.C. So Carolyn and Alex, welcome to the Pacific Century. Thanks very much, Misha. Thank you for having us on. Yeah, great to be here. Well, it's great to see you both. Um, obviously, we've we've met in person and we've we've talked. I've actually testified before the commission. Um, but what I thought we'd do today is is have a, um, a a discussion mostly on the 2023 report, but then expand it as we get into the into talking with each other on the sort of broad state of U.S. Uh, China relations. But before we did that, I thought, Carolyn, just in case anybody's not uh, completely familiar with the commission, maybe you'd, uh, having 20 years of experience on it, maybe you'd explain uh, just briefly, you know, what the commission is, um, why it's unique in Washington, uh, and, and quite honestly, what it does every year. Great. Thanks again, Misha. Thanks for having us on. Uh, it's always a pleasure to to participate in in discussions with Alex too, my my colleague and collaborator on on the commission. Um, so the commission was established in 2000 when Congress was considering China's um, accession to the World Trade Organization and had to pass permanent normal trade relations. And there were two commissions established by Congress uh, at the time. One, the other commission, the CECC, the Congressional Executive Commission on China, whose mandate was to focus on China human rights issues. Ours, the USCC, 
a mandate to focus on the national security implications of the US-China economic relationship. And I think that the establishment of the commission really reflected lingering concern, concern which of course has only grown over the course of the past 20, 25 years about what was going on in the US-China relationship, the impact of, of China's growth, its aggressiveness, all of those things. So. Um, we do. Uh, there, are, there are 12 commissioners, six Democrats, six Republicans. We are proudly bipartisan. Um, in one year when we have a, a Democratic chair, we have a Republican vice chair, and the next year we switch around. So we have a Republican chair and a Democratic vice chair. Um, three each of us are appointed by the House and Senate Democratic and Republican leadership two-year terms. Some of us get reappointed um, periodically every two years and uh, have the opportunity to serve. I, I think we're unique in the sense that we really were developed by Congress to advise Congress on U.S.-China issues. And it's become a very um, uh, interactive process. We have tried over the years to really be forward-leaning and identify issues that we think that Congress really needs to be thinking about and focusing on in the US-China relationship. And as the work has unfolded, we get a lot more input from people on the Hill, things they want us to be looking at, uh, issues that are coming up. I One example, of course, is fentanyl. I remember it was a number of years ago that uh, we had a senator contact us and say, you know, we'd really like to know more about what's going on with fentanyl. So we have been forward leaning on a number of issues. Cyber was we were one of the first places in town talking about cyber. Uh, China in Africa is another example. So there, there are a number of, of things that we do. As I've said, we've really tried to to identify issues that not everybody is paying attention to, but issues that need to be focused on. We do a series of hearings, usually six or seven hearings during the year. And then we do this annual report to Congress, which comes out in November. Right, and it, and the annual report is is a is a real report. It it's several hundred pages long. It's not a um, you know, a brief report. Uh, you know, like a twenty or thirty page thing that might come out of a think tank. It's a serious, you know, it's a serious effort. Um, I, I was just going to ask, do you? I'm sure you'll say complimentary, but I just wanted to ask. You know, do you see yourself in a? Uh, how are you different? For example, when you talked about your relationship with Congress from, let's say, Congressional Research Service, where Congress also tests them and says hey, we want to know more about this. And they continuously write and update reports. Why are why and how are you different? Um, that's an excellent question, Misha. I think one of the main uh, ways is we have a lot of freedom to identify. I'm not saying that CRS doesn't have freedom, but a lot of, of, um, of freedom and opportunity to identify, uh, again, emerging issues that we really are focused on, and then to focus on those in depth through our hearing process. One of the things I really like about our commission and our commission hearings, and you've participated, is that there are opportunities um, for, for the members of the commission to really interact with our witnesses. We don't have a situation where people are just sitting there saying, you know, we, we have, of course, over the years had some people who do say, this is what I believe, tell me why I'm wrong. But it's a really interactive process between us uh, the commissioners and our witnesses and the witnesses with each other. And so I find that there's a, a really good uh, intellectual foment that takes place as, as we try to come to, to some consensus. And that's another thing that really um, characterizes us is that we are a consensus body. Um, the report that you mentioned uh, has 30 recommendations this year. We have a terrific staff who works on initial drafts for us. And then we sit in a room together, sometimes 12 of us, hashing it out um, page by page, paragraph by paragraph, 
Sometimes it's line by line and word by word. So it becomes a really true bipartisan consensus product with a lot more input, I think, than, than you know, from a lot of different viewpoints than, than CRS actually does. Yeah, and I think that's where a lot of the influence and perhaps uh, credibility of the commission comes from. It's the fact that uh, uh, appointees from across the political spectrum and across the, the policy world of, of, of Washington are coming together and putting forth, for the most part, consensus recommendations that, that have that, that credibility. So, Alex, actually, it's a good um, segue if I uh, to ask you about this year's report. But if I, I seem to remember, I may be wrong. Correct me, uh, as I'm usually corrected on this podcast because I'm I'm often wrong. But um, I seem to remember Carolyn mentioned the bipartisan nature, you know, six Democrats, six Republicans, and yet I seem to remember the commission being labeled as a hawkish commission, and the reports as being hawkish reports because they often take a very um, uh, sober, uh, realistic, and and somewhat forward leaning view on China is that um, you know that might not be what we would expect from a bipartisan commission, which often is lowest common denominator. Right. I mean, some might say hawkish, uh, others might say prescient. Uh, I think you know from the beginning, uh, the the focus of the commission. I've only been on it uh, fairly recently, mm -hmm. but the focus of the commission has been to scrutinize. Uh, our policy with China and China's strategy outwardly toward the world and how that's connected to its own domestic uh, internal policies and strategies. So uh, it's that with that kind of skeptical eye that the highly, uh, you know, bringing high scrutiny to it, uh, that's been the mission from the beginning. And as Karen had mentioned, I, I think the commission's been um, ahead of the curve in some ways. But interestingly, Washington, as, as you know, Misha, and, and the wider policy world uh, in here and among our allies and partners, uh, has, I think, come around more towards the view of the commission, uh, understanding that the, uh, uh, the the relationship with China and, and, the, and, the, and the Communist Party uh, is competitive and in some aspects adversarial, and then we have to make corresponding policy changes. So perfect segue then into talking about the report, uh, Alex, if you might start us off and then um, we'll get into some more of the, the specifics of, of the different chapters, but um, what's the takeaway? What do we need to know uh, as we're beginning to uh, prepare for um, a presidential election next year? So the season will be wrapped up in all sorts of different issues. Um, but what's the takeaway for if, if you can boil it down for us? Right. I, I think stepping back, the approach of our report this year uh, is to look at the, the deep structural aspects of China's strategy toward the United States and the world and what we should do in response. You know, in the news, when people talk about China, there's a lot of focus on summits and meetings, freezes and thaws and, and, and high-level contacts between the US uh, and, and China and between our, our, ally, our European allies and China. That's not the focus of the report. And, and to, to draw from an analogy, Watching that type of diplomatic back and forth is, is kind of like standing on the beachfront and trying to understand the character of the ocean by watching uh, the, the, the tidal currents, the ebbs and flows of the waves right in front of you. Now, that's not unimportant. You need to understand uh, the, 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 current, the tidal currents to navigate perhaps in the day to day. But to truly understand the ocean, you have to get at the deep ocean currents animating it. So we're trying to get at the deep currents animating the U.S.-China relationship. So if you look at the report this year, number one, we'll look, we look at the economic uh, kind of structural situation of China, their, their current debt challenges, their challenges moving to a consumption-led uh, economy, 
And what does that mean for China's strategy? What does it mean for our responses uh, in the economic realm? We look at China's educational system and how the weakness in its human ability to produce human capital might hamper or at least present challenges for its attempt to move its economy up the value chain and achieve its, its economic security strategy. Then we move to uh, overall influence operations. What is China's strategy globally to exert influence in the media or in the political space in, in media? How are they using lawfare? Uh, what is their legal strategy to affect and, and push out their vision of not just international law, but domestic law and the use of Chinese domestic law extraterritorially to expand its, uh, its influence and, and exert its, uh, uh, its, its designs. And then last, we look at the technological and military realm, starting with what are China's military relationships, uh, its mill-to-mill -mill, uh, co cooperative uh, programs, how are they using that to advance its interests, and how are they investing in technology uh, in the military realm, not just to uh, fast follow or, or be a, a peer competitor in the military space with the United States, or how are they trying to leapfrog us? Uh, what, everything from AI to undersea warfare capabilities to space-based nuclear weapons. These are all things we're looking at because these will affect uh, where China's strategy is going uh, you know, in the immediate term as well as the long-term and then what our responses should be. So Carolyn, that, that is a great overview, Alex, and I, I appreciate it. I would mention on the tides that as, as much as you have to understand the deep ocean currents. You also have to watch out for the riptides sometimes. And of course, that's what, you know, we always get, we get focused on because that's, that's the immediate, um, the immediate crisis and the immediate danger. But, but obviously as someone who's just spent a lot of time in terms of Asia in general, looking at what I hope are deeper structural issues. Um, I, 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 I've always admired that about the commission and, and appreciate that you, that you stress that it's not always something that, that happens in Washington, right? Because you get, you get caught up in a cycle. That said, you know, Carolyn, you have such a um, a longitudinal perspective on this. I thought for a second maybe to turn to to you um, and ask you on the economic side. When you joined the commission in two thousand three, those were the go go days for China. Um, it was what two years after it had gotten into the WTO. It was igniting uh, a decade of growth. It was actually hard to think back that far, but it was only it was barely ten years since Deng Xiaoping had reignited China's reforms with his famous Southern tour. So you've you've seen uh, the growth, you've been there uh, through the growth of China during this, this extraordinary period. Um, now that we're 20 years out and you've completed uh, 20 cycles of this, what's your assessment uh, as the, as the uh, commission notes the headwinds that China's economy faces? What does that, what does that really mean? Um, Misha, that's an excellent question. I just want to loop back into the question you were asking. You mentioned that we were considered hawkish in the early years. Um, and and it's been interesting to watch over 20 years the sort of the, the, the transition in the policy debate and how things have changed. Because as Alex said, we we have not changed our policy positions, but the, the whole debate has shifted in D.C. And when this commission was started to tie into the economics, there were thousands of cheerleaders for the U.S.-China economic relationship. The business community believed that they were going to make a fortune, um, both uh, producing in China and, and marketing to the, to the Chinese people. So we were one of the places, one of the only places that was looking at some of the downsides of the relationship economically and national security. As Alex mentioned, sort of as, as we were looking at this year, there really are two dynamics that we were, that, that we were focusing on. One is 
the serious economic challenges that the Chinese that the Chinese Communist Party is facing. There are structural problems in their economy that they are either unwilling or incapable of addressing, including, of course, this massive debt that they have. Moody's just downgraded China's debt rating, uh, I think, to negative, and and that has certainly changed the it's changed the environment as people are looking at is it a good place to invest. We have pension funds that are investing there. That wide and is, is that wise investment. Um, the people understand what their investments are, where their investments are going. Fueling, for example, research that might be helping uh, China's military that would could eventually take us on. Um, so there's that, and at the same time, that's coupled with in increasing Chinese aggressiveness, both military aggressiveness in the South China Sea, but its promotion through the Belt and Road Initiative, the propaganda that it's doing, its interest and its desire to sort of recreate the global system in its own image. And that I think those are the, the bigger dynamics that we, dem we definitely are have, have been focusing on over the years. Another thing that I think is interesting, again, with the perspective of 20 years on this commission is in the early years, we had people, the, the military people, the security people who came on the commission were pretty traditional national security people, what you would think of as military strength. And the economics people were pretty traditional economics people. And what has happened over the years is those 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 um, areas, those sectors have sort of meshed together. And I think particularly when it comes to technology, they both have economic consequences, right? The future of our economy is, is based on our technological innovation and the national security implications of what China might be doing with that technology. So it's it's been a very interesting thing to see. I remember one time, oh, probably about 10 years ago now, I was at, at a, a group discussion about this and somebody, I won't name him Misha, but it's certainly somebody you know who was from the traditional military side, um, started talking about the economics and I was just floored. I mean, it was great, but it, it's it's that kind of merging those two issues together to come to some sort of understanding of what are the consequences, both militarily and economically for the US. So be, before turning to the military and the tech side, um, Carolyn, let me ask you first, um, what specifically sh does the commission believe that the U.S. should be doing to, uh, I think the, these terms of art always change. I think the current term is de-risk. It used to be decouple and it used to be what whatever the things were. Um, what What is it specifically that we need to do? Do we need to have our sneakers stop being made in China or is it something a little bit more sophisticated? And if so, are we getting any closer to that? What What is the commission recommending to Congress? Ah, uh, so I'm I'm going to say right up front that that um, because we are a consensus uh, institute, consent consensus organization, there are some issues that, much to the chagrin of some people, we actually just really don't take on, like international the international trade agreements. We 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 have a little bit of conversation about that. We we don't have any recommendations about that. Um, but but. We have been concerned both at the micro level in terms of the economics issues with the investments again, for example, and um, you know the PCAOB was making sure that um, Americans who are investing in China have access to independent um, auditing information in a, so that they can understand the risks that are being faced. So that's one of- And the P PCAOB, for those not familiar- is the, the PC, what does it stand for? The- uh, I'm gonna to have to look that one up. I'm so used to throwing. So PBOC, of course, is the is the People's Bank of China. Mm -hmm. um, 
it's the it's an accounting oversight board. Okay. Oh, in Ch it's the Chinese accounting. No, board. no, no, no. It's ours. It's ours. It's ours. Uh, I think it's public committee uh, for uh, accountability and oversight board. Uh, if I remember, yeah. CEO. Okay. For accounting. Okay. So, so again, that's one of the issues uh, be because um, certainly as the Chinese government has clamped down on information, um, both statistical information, right? We've seen that as an issue. You know, they have over a 21% youth unemployment rate. And what do they do? Instead of figuring out how to address that successfully, they just stop reporting those numbers. So there's that kind of information, but there's also the, the risk analysis that should be taking place when, when Americans are investing. So that's, that's one of the issues that, that we've done. Uh, we did recommend this year that the Congressional Joint Economic Committee used to do, used to produce an annual unclassified report on the state of the Chinese economy and economic policy decisions. One of the things we've recommended to Congress is that they reinstitute that report, which they haven't done for a while. Um, we, we recommend that, that Congress consider legislation requiring federal financial authorities here, including the Federal Reserve, to seek specific information from bank and investment institutions regarding their exposure to and involvement in the PRC. Um, we 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 have a steps that we say to combat tariff evasion. You know, we there's an ob obviously ongoing discussion about supply chain resilience. Some people support uh, friendshoring. Some people support just onshoring. But we need to make sure that as uh, as companies are leaving China to manufacture elsewhere, particularly in Southeast Asia, it is often uh, Chinese companies that are establishing th themselves in Southeast Asia, and they're doing that in a way to, to evade any tariffs that we have put on products. So that's an issue that we think that Congress needs to be looking at. And, and again, this year, a lot of it was about corporate disclosure requirements, making sure that people in this country have access to the kind of information that they need to do, need to have in order to make sound investment decisions. And since so th those are some of the micro things that we've talked and, and about. And one yeah. more uh, quick one, since it's the uh, topic du jour or dawn, it's it's on everybody's lips, which is semiconductors. Yes, uh, we have uh, we have a, 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 a we actually recommend that that um, the Congress ask the GAO, the General Accountability Office to do a report within 180 days of the effectiveness of the recently imposed uh, imposed semiconductor export controls. Are they working effectively? What's working? What isn't working? Um, along those lines, and I, I certainly will defer to Alex when we talk about the tech issues, I also just want to note that, that we are um, recommending here, it's one of my favorite recommendations, it didn't make it up into the top 10, but that we recommend that Congress consider um, evaluating of the potential for establishing a single export licensing system. Export licenses right now, it's a complicated process. Different agencies are involved. It, it really needs to be redone. First established export controls in the 1940s, updated in the 1970s, updated again relatively recently. But there needs to be a comprehensive look at this and to see whether we can have a more efficient system for, for business um, and that we can have staffing in these agencies they can address the challenges. I always say government moves slowly, technology moves quickly. By the time the government has made decisions, issues have moved on on technology and we are losing them. We're, we're losing the ability to control some of the things that again, might have national security implications for us. That is, um, uh, you know, again, export restrictions, um, the, the, just the, the question, of course, there's dual use technology. There's all of these issues probably some of the most arcane issues for those who are not 
specialists and trying to understand it from the outside or, or weigh in. Um, Alex, let me let me shift instead of uh, continuing on the on the econ though. Um, let me shift to the uh, the question of Chinese influence operations, uh, which is uh, an entire uh, chapter essentially uh, in the in the um, the report China's efforts to subvert norms and exploit open societies. What what is what does that mean? I mean, we are an open society. What, do we want to become a closed society? What 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 are we doing in vis-a-vis? What do we need to do vis-a-vis China? What's the threat? Yeah. Yeah, well, we'll let, let me be clear. We're not recommending at all that we uh, we we match China uh, as a uh, to, by closing our society. That's not the the openness of our society is a source of our strength, but it does present uh, certain openings and weaknesses that China's attempting to exploit. Now, I'll cover a, a number of them. I mean, first of all, we we talk about the educational system here, the higher educational system uh, in the United States, and the uh, amount of funding and donations coming from Chinese entities in, in, uh, uh, to uh, the US higher education system. Now, not all of those are illegitimate, not all of those are for influence purposes, but what we do recommend is uh, uh, servicing more information about A, the scale of those don- donations, uh, B, to what uh, research areas they are going to, and C, ensuring that uh, that information is coming out in a timely manner uh, so that it's available publicly but as well as to our intelligence and law enforcement agencies to determine if there if there is uh, an attempt here to uh, influence higher education and also extract the the type of research, particularly in the technological realm, that China is, is attempting to uh, uh, to build and, and leapfrog the United States. So there's a connection there between both influence as well as its technological strategy. Uh, but I want to talk a little about the lawfare uh, aspect of this. As, as many of your listeners know, the term lawfare is a term of art, but essentially trying to uh, use uh, uh, and leverage uh, uh, the U.S. and the free world's commitment to the rule of law, but to the ends of, of to political ends or security ends. So, uh, you know, one hi- highlight that I'll, 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 I'll uh, or one item I want to highlight is uh, the use by Chinese front groups, the United Front Department and others, uh, to silence critics in the United States by uh, uh, subjecting them to defamation lawsuits. Now, there's no... Um, uh, uh, merit to these suits, but they're strategic in that it uh, imposes costs on the uh, you know the, the dissident, if you want to call them that, or, or the or the person, the company making uh, or saying things about about the Chinese and in the in the CCP, uh, you know, legal fees, uh, discovery fees. So we make a recommendation to counteract that. That at the federal level, we should have uh, what are termed anti-slap lawsuits or anti-strategic lawsuits against public participation which shifts fees to the lawsuit bringer uh, and moves up uh, in, in the process uh, 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 an evaluation of whether the, the, the suit is meritorious or not. Uh, but that this is an attempt to insulate the, the, our open society and our rule of law from abuse by, by the Chinese. In addition to, um, I should mention, there's, there is a segue here. In addition to the annual report, we should mention that the commission puts out various different reports. And I've always found one of the most interesting uh, a report and, and one that you just updated on uh, to continue this theme of open societies, um, China using international organizations uh, by placing their own personnel in them and then often 
shifting the the focus or the the um uh the the goals of some of those organizations i mean probably one of the best one known uh, best known ones thanks to covid would be the who the world health organization but it's happened in the um uh, in the uh, international civil aviation organization of course um in the international telecommunications union attempted in the uh world was it intellectual property organization wipo um but uh, Alex, can you talk a little bit about that? Now, those, of course, are not American institutions. Your recommendations to Congress cannot change how WHO does its business. But can you talk a little bit right. along the lines of, of the United Front Work Organization and the others about this use of international organizations, which we all think is just a great thing. We have more international organizations. There's going to be more cooperation. Yeah, look, the, the Chinese were uh, ahead of the curve of really the rest of the world in seeing these international organizations as arenas for competition. And the, the terms of the competition are, can you get, as you're mentioning, can you get your nationals in leadership positions uh, to push uh, uh, your, your nation's interests? Or in the Chinese, uh, 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 you know, whether it's isolating Taiwan from these international organizations or trying to pull the standards technologically, trade-wise, of uh, that 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 go through these international organizations, pulling it towards uh, more of a a, a, a Chinese um, uh, character, uh, and the United States and, and our partners relate to the game. We didn't treat these as uh, arenas for for kind of politicking. Uh, you know, the international organizations are in large part less like diplomacy and more like unruly legislatures. You need to log roll. You need to pressure. You need to win votes to to win these uh, these positions. Uh, and I think uh, the United States now has woken up to this. And when I was in the Trump administration, uh, we empowered a, an ambassadorial level uh, special advisor uh, to, to head up international organization elections, to compete with China, to, to marshal our partners uh, in the free world, to identify the meritorious uh, uh, candidates, push them and look, make deals and log roll to try to get the right people in the right positions to blunt this strategy by, by China. Uh, so it's uh, we're a little late to the game, but I, I think uh, people have woken up to it. And one of those successes was the World Intellectual Property Organization, That's correct? Right. Where That's China, right. I mean, it's it's ironic, let's put it that way, that China, perhaps one of the larger abusers of intellectual property, wanted to have their, their person, a national, um, head up that organization. I, ha I recently had it ex uh, explained to me or, or, or um, argued to me by a state department official that you know you could look at this and say well so what you know so you've got a chinese person you know chinese national heading up x organization world intellectual property organization why does it matter you've got french and you've got italians and you've got you know angolans and and indians and japanese why why does it matter and and the, the argument that was made to me was that if you look at how and i'm i'm interested in your both of your reactions um if you look at how americans let's say act when they are put as officials and responsible um, directors of these organizations. They act in the interests of the organizations, and often they even act contrary to Washington's interests. They fully are agents of those institutions and organizations. On the other hand, when Chinese are heads of those organizations, they act as agents of Beijing. They don't act as agents of the organizations, but they're pushing Beijing's strategies and goals. Is that is that an accurate or fair assessment? Yes, I think that that is actually an accurate assessment. And, and uh, it, it is as uh, China's um, role in the world 
has has grown, we are seeing that many of their actions, most of their actions are about um, uh, promoting themselves and everything that the CCP does, of course, is designed to try to keep the CCP in power. I wanna loop back on the international organizations briefly to just say that, that, that it is not just, I think people have a tendency to think about things like the WHO and the UN, but it's also the international standard setting bodies that, that, that the Chinese have been very actively engaged in. And that has consequences for us economically and consequences for us both in national security, because when they are essentially in charge of standard setting bodies, they are making sure that the standards that are being set are for Chinese developed products. Could you give an example maybe? Just a quick example, just for the layman. Let me give an example of that. It would be even something like a, a telecommunications, right? I mean, a standard, uh, a standard for for five G or something like that. When when the when the Chinese are involved or controlling the standard setting bodies on these things, they are making sure that the technical standards advantage their products and their companies, which in exchange, in, in turn, actually disadvantage ours. And there's so much that flows from this technology about apps. You know, there, there's sort of a, a, an economic framework where you can have one technology, but so many things build on that technology that if we are shut out of one of these technologies, then we are we are we are losing all of the downstream advantages of of things that would support that technology. So that was one thing I wanted to mention. And the other thing I think when we look at international organizations is that you have to put it in the context of China's um, propaganda work around the world. Right? It is not just us that they are trying to influence. It is the stuff that they are doing through the Belt and Road Initiative, the stuff that they are doing, investing in access for natural resources. All of those things. Are, many of those things are being done in countries where they are using their investments to get the, the responses that they want, the votes that they want in an organization like the United Nations. Another implication of that, of course, is that they are shutting Taiwan out everywhere they possibly can. And that even goes down to not allowing people from Taiwan to work in, in something like WHO. It's not, it is about both participating in it as a, as a, as a, as an institution, but it is also about who, who they are allowing to staff these things. And that has a serious implications, both for the effectiveness, I think, of the organizations themselves and also, of course, for Taiwan space in the in the world. Absolutely. I, I hope we can we can turn to Taiwan, but um I know we're doing sort of a romp through, you know, the world of China and the world of of uh, America, China relations, but um, given time, I, I wanted to turn, uh, Carolyn, and actually ask you because you have such extensive experience, and this was clearly something that was very important to Speaker Pelosi, which is the question of human rights, uh, and the you know where we stand today. Um, you know, the world uh, has watched, and some would argue watched silently what's happened in Xinjiang. Uh, it has watched, I would argue, largely silently what's happened in Hong Kong. Um, there is, you know, to bring in Taiwan, that is sort of the ultimate uh, or one of the ultimate goals uh, of the party is to to do to uh, Taiwan what it's done to those other, you know, potentially rogue slash breakaway areas. Um, <clears throat> what is the commission? How does the commission handle? And, and as you mentioned, there is the Congressional Executive Commission, which deals with human rights. But how does your commission handle the question of human rights? What are you what have you looked at? What do you recommend? What do you worry about? 
Yeah, uh, that that's also an excellent question. I think there are uh, two two places that I can well three three areas that I can think of, but not necessarily geographic. One, of course, is the Uyghurs and th things like the force uh, the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act. We have talked about um, the de minimis exclusion, which is that you know uh, um, anything under eight hundred dollars doesn't need to go through our whole uh, customs process. So companies like Shein and Timu are just flooding the United States with with products that are it's ha having a serious economic implications for what remains of our textile and and garment industry in this country. So that's one thing. So so it's it's trade related, but it is also human rights related. Hong Kong. We spent time. Um, uh, looking at Hong Kong, what's happening in Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong legal system is a that um, is is being destroyed, frankly, by by the Chinese government, and that has implications also for the business community, the international business community. You are the U.S. business community are they're naive if they think what's happening with Chinese uh, with um, Hong Kong's legal system will not eventually catch up with them. So those are those are two specific areas where we do that. Um, I think a third area that we that we look at is we look at surveillance technology, right, which has fundamental human rights issues. So it's data gathering. It's 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 uh, again, the surveillance technology that the Chinese government, Chinese companies are selling to to other countries, um, things like smart cities. Even here, we need to make sure that when when our communities are investing in smart cities, that they are thinking about the consequences of what having a Chinese participation in smart cities infrastructure would would do and would do it. So it's really three areas, as I said, Uyghur, forced labor um, uh, protection, uh, Hong Kong judiciary in particular, and, and then this issue of surveillance and surveillance technology. That's great. Obviously, there's, there's a lot more to talk about, especially that last one in the surveillance technology, and it gets to all the questions about tech competition and and the like, but um, again, uh, just to, in the interest of uh, of time, because there's we could just do you know an entire you know hours on each one of these. But Alex, um, I'd like to turn if if I could to the military question, which is you know in many cases and whether warranted or not, it's something that gets an enormous amount of attention in D.C. because there's an enormous amount of money involved. Um, what is the state of the military balance? What does the commission find? Should we be worried, really? I mean, look, we got eleven aircraft carriers. They've got what two, maybe three. Um, what 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 is what is really the story of uh, the the challenge that we have on the military side? And and uh, is it getting worse? Is it getting better? Yeah, I, I do think we have a a serious challenge uh, on our hands with China militarily, uh, and I I think that's a uh, not a secret, and that's that's a consensus opinion across. Um, you know, our, our military and our policymakers. Let me focus on two areas. What, what we're seeing is China's making heavy investments, not just in terms of money, but in reforming and uh, uh, modifying its bureaucracy and its procurement to pursue advantage and leapfrog the United States in, in two main areas that concern me. Number one is in the nuclear realm. Now, we've over the years tracked uh, China's nuclear development, and not just in terms of the number of warheads, but in the modernization and the diversification of its nuclear capabilities, both in delivery systems and in the yield. So what we're seeing and what we talk about in the report this year is the possible development of the capability of China to produce low yield nuclear weapons, which gives it different, uh, which may indicate a, a, a change in its nuclear doctrine and how it would, would fight a war, whether uh, in, in the spectrum between conventional and nuclear, but also looking at delivery systems. I wanna highlight one, one item, which is uh, China's already a leader 
in hypersonics and space-based uh, uh, capabilities. And to the extent that they add and are pursuing a space-based, uh, what, what's called a fractional orbital bombardment system, uh, which would basically obviate our missile defenses, that introduces a new realm of instability uh, at the nuclear level. It has to, it, it will force us to rethink our own doctrine of deterrence, and it's forcing us, and we should, pursue our own uh, uh, technological uh, innovations to counteract that uh, and to deter that. that. That's a new set of thinking, uh, and it's not a secret, but we talked about it in, in, in our report. Furthermore, the U.S. has long had an advantage in undersea warfare capabilities, particularly which is particularly important in the Indo-Pacific and for deterrence and stability in the Indo-Pacific. China's trying to leapfrog us there. They're trying to uh, 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 neutralize our advantage by pursuing and uh, uh, improving their own undersea capabilities as far as quieting their systems, but how to detect our, uh, our submarines, our undersea uh, 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 platforms. And one worry there uh, uh, is that they're able to, to improve and, and speed up that, that innovation because of its relationship with Russia. Russia has very advanced undersea capabilities. And right now, Russia is very dependent on China, at least for economic support in its war uh, uh, an invasion of, of Ukraine. Now, we don't have evidence that Russia is proliferating undersea technology or, or, or giving it to the Chinese, but it's definitely something that the Chinese would want from Russia, and they have some leverage now. So, so key worries for us uh, and, and, and key threats uh, that might uh, affect negatively the, the military balance in the Indo-Pacific. So it's also a, just a great um, a great overview and, and something we could course continue to talk about for a long time but as we as we begin to wrap up I'd, I'd like to ask like that's sort of a, a cultural question if I can I know we're not uh, really getting unfortunately to Taiwan right now I think it's a big uh, it's an area that, that um, probably needs its own discussion but let me ask you a bit of a cultural question um to both of you but but Carolyn you know again you've been you've been in Washington a long time you've you've done this for a long time been on the commission for um for 20 years um First, I guess the first question is, are you confident that we really are where we're, that we're getting to where we need to be? I mean, should, should we take hope, take heart, or are the, the pathways that we've seen develop over the past 20 years, let's say, so ingrained now, so developed, so, so advanced that we can talk all we want and, and try to tweak here and there, but we're really we're really not going to be able to respond uh, how we need to, um, or or are we are we getting to where we are? Is it it's sort of a it's a broader than just an area specific or issue specific. It's more about the culture of how the United States is approaching the relationship with China. Let me start with you, Carolyn, then then ask Alex. Yeah, that's a it's a really interesting question, and I guess I would answer. Um, when you raise the issue of hope, it would sort of be hope for what we want, right? I mean, hope, what 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 is it that we're looking for? So in, in the bigger relationship, again, I've been actually doing this since, since June 4th, 1989, since the Tiananmen Square massacre. Um, we have certainly seen, as, as, as Alex started, you know, ebbs and flows in what is going on. Um, I, I don't think that we are doing everything that we could be doing. Um, both to to um, ensure of our our own economic vitality going forward, our own economic competitiveness, and and making sure that we are focused where we need to be on the on the military technology acquisition, all of these things. I think we could and must do more. 
on, um, on ensuring that Chinese acquisitions of US companies are not um, improving uh, their military capability. Um, you know, I, I, I think we have to face the reality that we may be in a conflict with them, a hard conflict with them. My hope would be that we all figure out a way not to have that happen. Um, I'm, I've always been concerned about the fact that somehow the onus of trying to improve the relationship is always put on the United States. Somehow the Chinese, they always blame us for when things are bad. And a lot of people pick up that narrative and somehow think that the improvement has to come from us. The improvement has to come from both sides, right? There are things that the Chinese government needs to do. There are things that the US government needs to do. So, I mean, I'm always hopeful in the sense that that you just don't know where things are going to go and what's going to happen. We've seen that certainly this year, but but hopeful in the sense that I think that there are certainly a number of people who are looking at these ideas. There's there's one strain that I always pay attention to and I'm concerned about, and that is the economic interests, right? That that when there are people in this country, investment banks, for example, you know, fund managers who see their their big returns coming from China, they have an um, I think of too much of an influence on terms of what's going on with the policy discussion. But we have seen successes. And I think that, you know, again, the fact that this is generally a bipartisan response, both the commission and China policy generally, I'm I'm hopeful that we will be able to figure out ways to work through all of this. Alex, is is should we take heart? Uh, are we on the right track? Or is it a, a foregone conclusion that we will slip into permanent second place? Well, look, I, I, I'm an optimist, number one, uh, but also a strong believer in the free world uh, and the United States and our, our friends and allies. But what I will say is, I think in recent years, uh, past three to five years, which is a pretty short time in, in world history, there has been a strong change in uh, the posture, not just in the United States, but among our, our, our partners and allies across the world in uh, instituting more balance uh, in the relationship with China economically, militarily, politically. Now, let me start with our, our friends and partners in the Indo-Pacific. Now, I will argue that they're not new to this China competition idea. I mean, for hundreds, if not you know, thousands of years, their strategic cultures have been, how do we balance whether individually or together uh, uh, a, a, a powerful China, a large China? But we're seeing, I think, the start of major muscle movements, particularly in the security realm from our partners like Japan, uh, our continued uh, or or new uh, renewed cooperation and 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 posture, a military posture in the Philippines, uh, but other partners. You know, we're looking at the Quad, for instance, as at least a a, a discussion group for how to bring balance in the Indo-Pacific region. Let's move to the Europeans. You know, during my time in the administration, uh, just a few short years ago, the conversations with the Europeans were very different. We were there. Uh, the Commission was there this this past uh, spring. And these new terms, whether it's de-risking or uh, the term that I like uh, that that was coined uh, by the Europeans of uh, China as a systemic rival, that's a, a public realization that China's strategy uh, and and the character of the EU and, and European nations are systematically systemically incompatible, and that there need to be policy changes. Now, I think we're still waiting for those big policy changes on the European side. But the fact that they talk about it in this way, that the concept is there, that this is a competition, I think is a big move for our European partners. But then here in the United States, uh, we've all been in, in policy circles, I think five years, even five years ago, there was a, a, a live debate between kind of traditional engagement with China versus a competitive posture towards China. 
I think today that debate is over. I think it's consensus now of not whether we're in a competition, but how do we execute that competition to advance our interests and those and, and our ideals together with our partners and allies. And that's a sea change in, in DC. So I think we're on the right track. Uh, and I do think we have inherent strengths as the United States together with uh, the, the rest of the free world in this competition with a with a communist China. Well, it's always good, especially in this season, to end on an optimistic note. We don't always do on this podcast, but uh, this is one of those times, clearly, with with both of you uh, expressing some some guarded, cautious optimism, uh, which which I appreciate. I mean, we could have gone on for a lot longer talking about all of these issues. This really was, uh, you know, a a really quick survey, and so I encourage everyone to go to uscc.gov. That's the commission's site. Um, to get the annual report, but get the other reports. You can also read the testimony of of the hearings. It is it is uh, really, I would argue, one of the most important um, organizations, groups in Washington, uh, looking at at probably the most critical issue we face. So, um, always great to talk with you, Carolyn Bartholomew, Alex Wong, the chair and vice chair of the U.S. China Economic and Security Review Commission. Thank you so much for joining us on the Pacific Century. Great. Thanks so much, Misha, for having us on. Thank you. Great to be with you. So for the Pacific Century, I'm Misha Oslin. Thank you for tuning in, and we will see you next time. This podcast is a production of the Hoover Institution, where we generate and promote ideas advancing freedom. For more information about our work, to hear more of our podcasts, or view our video content, please visit hoover.org.